Jane Austen's Emma, Volume 3, Part 5, Chapters 13 through 15. In Chapter 13, Emma is walking in the garden when Mr. Knightley unexpectedly returns. Quote, she had been thinking of him the moment before as unquestionably 16 miles distant, end quote. That is, still visiting his brother, her brother-in-law, back in London. The two walk together in the garden and speak of the revelation of the secret engagement between Frank Churchill and Jane Fairfax. He has heard of it via a letter from Mr. Weston and says, I am sorry for her. She deserves a better fate and refers to Frank as an abominable scoundrel. Emma says, My blindness to what was going on led me to act by them in a way that I must always be ashamed of, and I was very foolishly tempted to say and do many things which may well lay me open to unpleasant conjectures, but I have no other reason to regret that I was not in the secret earlier. This is good news for Mr. Knightley because he has thought that Emma was in love with Frank Churchill, like Mrs. Weston, and was worried about how she might react. He says, I could never, I confess, from your manners, assure myself as to the degree of what you felt. I could only be certain that there was a preference, and a preference which I never believed him to deserve. He is a disgrace to the name of man. And is he to be rewarded with that sweet young woman? Jane, Jane, you will be a miserable creature, end quote. Mr. Knightley goes on to praise Jane and say, He is a most fortunate man, so early in life, at three and twenty, a period when, if a man chooses a wife, he generally chooses ill, at three and twenty to have drawn such a prize, assured of the love of such a woman, the disinterested love for Jane Fairfax's character vouches for her disinterestedness. Being disinterested at this time does not mean uninterested, that is, not having any interest at all. It means not having a conflict of interest. In other words, Jane is not a fortune seeker. She loves Frank for himself and not for any money he might have. Mr. Knightley seems, in fact, a little jealous of Frank Churchill. He says, Frank Churchill is indeed the favorite of fortune. Everything turns out for his good. He meets with a young woman at a watering place, gains her affection, cannot even weary her by negligent treatment, and had he and all his family sought round the world for a perfect wife for him, they could not have found her superior. His aunt is in the way. His aunt dies. He has only to speak. His friends are eager to promote his happiness. He had used everybody ill, and they are all delighted to forgive him. He is a fortunate man indeed. You speak as if you envied him. And I do envy him, Emma, in one respect. He is the object of my envy. After some awkward silences and Emma's expressing her wish that Mr. Knightley will always be a friend to her, Mr. Knightley seems disappointed. He finally breaks down and says, My dearest Emma, for dearest you will always be, whatever the event of this hour's conversation, my dearest, most beloved Emma, tell me at once, say no if it is to be said. She could really say nothing. You are silent, he cried with great animation, absolutely silent. At present, I ask no more. 
Emma was almost ready to sink under the agitation of this moment. The dread of being awakened from the happiest dream was perhaps the most prominent feeling. I cannot make speeches, Emma, he soon resumed, and in a tone of such sincere, decided, intelligible tenderness as was tolerably convincing. If I loved you less, I might be able to talk about it more, but you know what I am. You hear nothing but truth from me. I have blamed you and lectured you, and you have borne it as no other woman in England would have borne it. Bear with the truths I would tell you now, dearest Emma, as well as you have borne with them. The manner, perhaps, may have as little to recommend them. God knows I have been a very indifferent lover, but you understand me. Yes, you see, you understand my feelings and will return them if you can. At present, I ask only to hear, once to hear your voice. While he spoke, Emma's mind was most busy, and with all the wonderful velocity of thought, had been able, and yet without losing a word, to catch and comprehend the exact truth of the whole, to see that Harriet's hopes had been entirely groundless, a mistake, a delusion, as complete a delusion as any of her own, that Harriet was nothing, that she was everything herself, end quote. Ever since the conversation with Harriet, in which Emma feared that Mr. Knightley was in love with Harriet, she has gradually come to the realization that she has loved Mr. Knightley all along, and now, discovering that he loves her too, is almost too much happiness for her to bear. She learns that it was because of her behavior with Frank Churchill that Mr. Knightley had gone to London. Quote, the Box Hill party had decided him on going away. He would save himself from witnessing again such permitted, encouraged attentions. He had gone to learn to be indifferent, but he had gone to a wrong place. There was too much domestic happiness in his brother's house. Woman wore too amiable a form in it. Isabella was too much like Emma, differing only in those striking inferiorities, which always brought the other in brilliancy before him, for much to have been done, even had his time been longer. He had ridden home through the rain and had walked up directly after dinner to see how this sweetest and best of all creatures, faultless in spite of all her faults, bore the discovery. He had found her agitated and low. Frank Churchill was a villain. He heard her declare that she had never loved him. Frank Churchill's character was not desperate. She was his own Emma by hand and word, when they returned into the house. And if he could have thought of Frank Churchill then, he might have deemed him a very good sort of fellow. Chapter 14 opens with the sentence, What totally different feelings did Emma take back into the house from what she had brought out? And there is a comment about Mr. Woodhouse. Poor Mr. Woodhouse little suspected what was plotting against him in the breast of that man whom he was so cordially welcoming and so anxiously hoping might not have taken cold from his ride. Could he have seen the heart, he would have cared very little for the lungs, end quote. Emma is now in a fever with her awareness of her love for Mr. Knightley and his for her. 
She spends a sleepless night reflecting on the fact that however much she loves Mr. Knightley, she has an obligation to her father. It would be too traumatic for her father to ask him to move or for her to leave home. Much of the rest of chapter 14 consists of a very long letter from Frank Churchill to Mrs. Weston that she sends along to Emma with the preface, I have the greatest pleasure, my dear Emma, in forwarding to you the enclosed. I know what thorough justice you will do it and have scarcely a doubt of its happy effect. I think we shall never materially disagree about the writer again, End quote. The letter is filled with Frank Churchill's flowery phrases in which he explains the circumstances by which he felt he had to propose a secret engagement with Jane Fairfax and how he should have gone mad had she refused him. He was conscious of the fact that he should have visited Randall sooner and felt guilty about the secret engagement. He mentions Emma several times, saying, My behavior to Miss Woodhouse indicated, I believe, more than it ought. In order to assist a concealment so essential to me, I was led on to make more than an allowable use of the sort of intimacy into which we were immediately thrown. I cannot deny that Miss Woodhouse was my ostensible object, but I am sure you will believe the declaration that had I not been convinced of her indifference, I would not have been induced by any selfish views to go on. Amiable and delightful as Miss Woodhouse is, she never gave me the idea of a young woman likely to be attached. And that she was perfectly free from any tendency to being attached to me was as much my conviction as my wish. She received my attentions with an easy, friendly, good-humored playfulness which exactly suited me. When I called to take leave of her, I remember that I was within a moment of confessing the truth, and I then fancied she was not without suspicion, but I have no doubt of her having since detected me, at least in some degree. She may not have surmised the whole, but her quickness must have penetrated a part. I cannot doubt it. You will find, whenever the subject becomes freed from its present restraints, that it did not take her wholly by surprise. She frequently gave me hints of it. I remember her telling me at the ball that I owed Mrs. Elton gratitude for her attentions to Miss Fairfax, end quote. Well, Frank is completely wrong about Emma, both about her feelings and her perceptions. She did not perceive the truth of the affair, and going back to the brief meeting with Frank as he was leaving Highbury, the awkward silences, and Emma's sense that he was about to confess something, you may recall that Emma was convinced that Frank was about to confess his love for her. Frank has misjudged Emma entirely, thinking that she knew all along that he was just playing with her. Once again, a major assumption on his part was wrong. Frank also confesses that he had sent the pianoforte to Jane, which explains that little mystery. Some other mysteries are resolved as well. The morning of the strawberry picking at Donwell Abbey. When he had arrived in such an agitated state, he had met Jane on her way home, and they had had a major quarrel. Frank also confesses how shamefully he had treated Jane the next day at Box Hill, which caused further dissent between the two. That was what had precipitated Jane's decision to accept the offer of a situation proposed by Mrs. Elton. She had written Frank a letter saying that she had dissolved the engagement. 
a letter that fortunately reached Frank the morning of his aunt's death. He answered it immediately, but somehow the letter became mixed with some other correspondence and was locked in his desk for several days. When he did not receive a reply from Jane, he thought she was too angry with him, and when she did not receive a reply from him to her letter dissolving the engagement, she returned all his letters to him. Only then did he learn that she was about to take the governess situation with the small ridges. He immediately consulted his uncle, who sanctioned the marriage, and he pleaded with Jane to take him back, so the lovers are reconciled. Frank's lengthy letter is signed, Your Obliged and Affectionate Son, F.C. Weston Churchill. This is the first time he has signed a letter in that way. Chapter 15 opens immediately after Frank's letter that closed chapter 14. Emma feels some sympathy for the fact that there is genuine suffering on Frank's part, but she really wants to consult with Mr. Knightley about the letter. She persuades him to read the letter in her presence. He had wanted to take it with him so as not to waste time that could be spent with Emma because the letter is so long, but she has to return the letter to Mrs. Weston. This allows us to see Mr. Knightley's reactions to various parts of the letter through his comments to Emma, comments such as this, Very bad, though it might have been worse, playing a most dangerous game, too much indebted to the event for his acquittal, no judge of his own manners by you, always deceived, in fact, by his own wishes, and regardless of little besides his own convenience, fancying you to have fathomed his secret, natural enough, his own mind full of intrigue that he should suspect it in others, mystery, finesse, how they pervert the understanding. My Emma, does not everything serve to prove more and more the beauty of truth and sincerity in all our dealings with each other? And of course, this is one of the first things we learn about the relationship between Emma and Mr. Knightley in the beginning of the novel, that they say what they like to each other. And Mr. Knightley goes on commenting about the secret engagement. This is very bad. He had induced her to place herself for his sake in a situation of extreme difficulty and uneasiness, and it should have been his first object to prevent her from suffering unnecessarily, end quote. Emma does try to take Frank's part a bit, saying, Nay, nay, read on. You will find how very much he suffers. I hope he does, replied Mr. Knightley coolly. I wish you would read it with a kinder spirit towards him. Well, there is feeling there. He does seem to have suffered in finding her ill, end quote. So once again, suffering is seen as a mark of gentility. As Emma and Mr. Knightley finish the letter, their dilemma about what to do about their engagement and Emma's father is resolved when Mr. Knightley proposes that he move in with Emma and Mr. Woodhouse rather than having her move to Donwell Abbey. That way, her father could continue at home as long as he lived, and they would both still have Mr. Knightley there. The narrator observes wryly that, quote, it is remarkable that Emma, in the many, very many points of view in which she was now beginning to consider Donwell Abbey, was never struck with any sense of injury to her nephew Henry, whose rights as heir expectant 
had formerly been so tenaciously regarded, end quote. This is a reference to the argument between Mrs. Weston and Emma earlier in the novel when Mrs. Weston thought that there might be an attachment between Mr. Knightley and Jane Fairfax. Emma was then outraged at such a prospect, supposedly because it would prevent her nephew Henry from becoming the heir to Donwell Abbey. <laughs> 